Good evening, everybody. Glad to see you all this evening. And we'll begin with our refuges and precepts chanting together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham Saranangachami Dhammam Saranangachami Sangham Saranangachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangham Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangham Saranangachami Panatipata Veramani sikapadam samadhi ami adina dana veramani sikapadam samadhi ami abrakmacharya veramani sikapadam samadhi ami musavada veramani sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Marea Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana, Malaganda, Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Vipusanatana, Varvasi, Sika, excuse me, Vermani, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Uchasayana, Mahasayana, Veramani, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami Idam Me Silam Maga Palanyanasa Pachayo O Tu The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality 
of not self. And the looking glass being uh, a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. So starting with some words from the, one of the students of one of my Dhamma teacher friends. What are you? My young son shouts gleefully at me, at me several times a day over the past year. In his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, and now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move through one exhibit to the next. Initially, I tried to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically, no, your mama. My responses became very mundane. I'm your mother. I'm your mom. I'm a woman named Sue. I'm tired. I'm trying to put my shoes on. His, his entirely, he was entirely, totally neutral to any of my responses. For a time, I was really profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each, each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand this not as an irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became an invitation to wake up. My mindfulness bell, a tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at me. What are you? <laughs> exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of mindful awareness. Answers still pop up, both mundane and philosophical in turns. I'm a river of being. I'm annoyed. I'm adoring. I'm thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of life, life passing right through the open door of my mind. Rumi says, this human being is a guest house. Each morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your daily life experience perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question might be your mindfulness bell in disguise. Over a period of years during my childhood and then on through adolescence and into the teen years, I, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in, at the mirror 
at my, in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. Well, sometimes I was amazed by this dream. I was often quite fascinated by it and intrigued by it at times. And if I thought about it uh, uh, much, I, I got quite perplexed. But mostly I was really interested. Interested enough that it's actually the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. Right then I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror, in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror became the gist of the direction my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore what are called the three characteristics or the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arise in our, rises in our body-mind continuum. With the second universal characteristic or truth being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects, as well as in the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a secure, sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness, but rather the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking, the ongoing rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the natural ongoing mortality of all phenomena, its nature being to change and to pass away. This evening we'll primarily explore the not-self nature of it all, the reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an, an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this third truth is so basic, so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's, it's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping 
through or lifting the veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, even a static me, I, them, him, her, they, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future. Or within the context of the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs. To relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's very important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. That's not what this means. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as ourself because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way, not even for a moment. What we call self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly discernible phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see, and know directly through our practice. One aspect that I mentioned in a previous Dhamma talk it's really available uh, to know experientially in the body is, the, is that the body is the process that's made up of many elements. The earth element with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the fire element with its, its characteristics of heat and coolness and the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing with each and all of these elements in constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship with each other. Our so-called bodily self is in constant flux, just like a, a fast flowing river. So in truth, there's nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to, nothing to identify with. Actions without an actor, doings without a doer, said the Buddha. As you probably know, at least to some degree, essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and practices eventually lead to this. 
The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't directly deal with, with, some, way, with under, uh, some way of understanding and undoing confusion and anguish. And he wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth, an experiential understanding of the way of things. He was a teacher of a, a practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see ourselves more and more accurately. Begin to see through ourselves by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we are attached to them, without the layer of meaning we invest things with when we're identified with them. The key to this is what can be called bare attention, which is a basic, unalloyed, pure form of mindfulness. It's a purely receptive state that attends to the bare facts of perception without reacting to them meaning not commenting, not making something out of what's being perceived, not doing anything about or with what's being known. It's actually really simple, but it's actually not easy either. <laughs> Again, simple, but not easy. Bare attention allows things to speak for themselves, so to say, without the interruption of habitual judgments or various verdicts. What's being attended to with the mindfulness of bare attention allows each thing, each phenomena, each experience to finish its own speaking, so to say. We learn, in fact, that things, phenomena, have much to say about themselves, which formerly was mostly ignored or, or drowned out by the inner noise of our misperceiving and misjudging and the strain, maybe, of over-efforting and impatience that we humans ordinarily live with. Bear attention sees things ever anew as if for the first time, which allows things to reveal something new and something worthwhile with more and more frequency. We're then able to receive wider and deeper horizons of understanding, understanding and wisdom. And we're able to receive this quite naturally and open to it in a seemingly effortless way. This way of attending to our experience 
is a training, a way to be practiced and learned, which is what we're doing. Along the way, bare attention is sustained for as long a time as our strength and depth of concentration permits. So it's closely related to the development of our capacity for focused attention. This quality of mind as it's developed and as it matures is an incredibly rich source of inspiration and understanding in relationship to our practice and in relationship to our life as a whole. So here we all are sitting in this online retreat. And at some point, sitting at home, not in an online retreat or at work or with a sangha or sitting by yourself in the park. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. The subtle brushing of the in-breath at the anapana spot is merely the subtle brush sensation at the anapana spot. The rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly is merely rising and falling. Remembering is just remembering. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, all of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. And as the great Thai meditation master and teacher Ajahn Chah said, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm, realm of conditioned existence, conditional experience, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And offering a short teaching that I offered uh, a few nights ago from the Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. And some words from the Buddha. This is a teaching that he gave to his student, Megia. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the, the conceit, I am. For when one per perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not self is established. With the perception of not self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. 
And that is Nibbana, here and now. We experience this and that. Everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we sense and see? So for instance, we might think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my free friends, my fear, my house, my, 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 this and that. This is somehow, this is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become. This is how we perpetuate, continuing to become. And this is how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not self, is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. As we continue to mindfully investigate with willingness and humility and bear attention, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will gradually come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally and steadily begin to increase. Can we observe experience? Can we inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but rather connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as is sometimes spoken of. Not two, just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing 
the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sensory experiences, as well as feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up, reduced, relinquished, and maybe eventually eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but through the actual direct experience, experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know not self or where they come to know self, not self. (laughs) Or not self, self, however you want to say it. And then for, for just a moment or two, and eventually longer, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. In some words from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell wrote his own version of the Narcissus story, and this is from Stephen Mitchell. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, kneeling there, gazing into the so taken for granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry our self around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes, all the fears, 
we shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in form, in form of thoughts and feelings, various opinions, perceptions, and beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered a metaphor in seeing a poisonous snake, but if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep looking and seeing and living life. And in fact, living life much more freshly and fully right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher right here on retreat and in our life outside of a formal retreat. Jane Hirschfield, a Buddhist poet, I read something from her in another Dhamma talk. I'd like to read a new poem, another new poem, but one of her poems. It's called, Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug. Hesitant, even the towels, for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant as if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, and that even this body 
is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and or is the rumbling sensation there? And is that me? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? Is that me? Well, we might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot. Maybe I'm not the sensation of the in-breath. But most certainly my mind, certainly my, my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is, that the very nature of mind itself is that it is unformed, unborn. Look into your own mind, look into your own heart mind for just a moment now. And we are going about to do this. So as these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect, let go of interpreting with the intellect and just simply open and receive the words, just simply and directly hearing. It's helpful if you close your eyes, or you take a couple breaths before I go on. Where is it and what is it we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body? Is it different from the nature of anything? 
maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And so the Buddha coming directly out of his own experience turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditional phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors no matter how gross or subtle that object may be. It's often dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It's dependent on the mental labels and constructs and, cling, and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about what he called the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional, and that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering. There are two very short suttas that are in conversational uh, uh, dialogue between the Buddha and one of his students or actually the, between the Buddha, the first one's between the Buddha and one of the devas. And it, just to remind some of you who may not know this or didn't, don't remember that a deva in the Buddhist teachings and understanding is a being that is quite uh, pure and has a lot of insight, but uh, is not yet totally free of suffering. So this first conversation is between a deva and the Buddha. And the deva asks the Buddha some questions. What produces a person? What does she or he have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is her or his greatest fear? 
from what is she or he not yet freed and what determines his or her destiny? Those are all the questions that the Deva asks the Buddha and the Buddha responds. Craving is what produces a person. Her or his mind is what runs around. A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. She or he is not freed from suffering. Karma or kama determines his or her destiny. In another short conversation, this one's between the Buddha and Ananda, the, the Buddha's chief disciple. The title of this conversation is called Empty is the World. And Venerable Ananda speaks. Venerable Sir, it's said, empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds. It is Ananda because it is empty of self. And what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, and then he goes on through each of the sense store consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness and whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neutral, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And again, some words from the Buddha. When one does not intend, and one does not plan, and one does not have a tendency towards anything, no basis exists for the maintenance of what we could say is self-centered consciousness. When there is no basis, there's no support for establishing of this self-centered consciousness. When this self-centered consciousness is unestablished, it doesn't come to growth. There's no inclination. When there's no inclination, there's no coming and going. When there's no coming and going, there's no passing away and being born. When there's no passing away and being born, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Ajahn Shah used to say, die before you die, not in a negative way. Let go, let go, let go. And offering a wonderfully simple poem by contemporary Buddhist poet, Jim Harrison, who uh, died a few years ago. 
and this is his poem. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words <clears throat> that I'll be speaking. If an image doesn't come easily uh, for some of you, that's fine. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with your closing your eyes, relaxing, your doors open. And visualizing in, or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. Letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless, countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel reflects in itself every other gem in the net. While at the same time, its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now, just let the image go. Let the fence felt sense dissolve. Let it all go.
the intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of not self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity and understanding that there is only relationship. There is what Thich Nhat Hanh calls only interbeing. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate, isolated, independent me. And now the second guided meditation. So settling in again, close your eyes again, open the heart mind again, open the ear doors again. Take a breath or two, relax. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, as one of my teachers, Pawak Saidao, says. Visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or, or felt sense, 
let the mind, the heart rest in the openness of the sky, the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud, just simply being aware of their rise, arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart mind to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space. And now let the image and the felt sense fade away. Let it go, let it fade away. And simply sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing mindful awareness to be spacious not fixing any edges to it. Who's aware? Who knows? Now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for just a moment. As we learn to step back and open up, and face the looking glass with willingness and with humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in and we keep look clear of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things are arising, changing and passing away. We see that because of this, that no thing satisfies, 
no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease sustain is sustaining in any way. And we understand that we can't really depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us really, truly happy and at ease. And as we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self, mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open and more all-encompassing. And at the same time, more penetrating and more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I, of me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this, there's no solid, separate I or other. It's this essential heart of being, or what is sometimes referred to as emptiness. There's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease. Even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and all around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core of loneliness that human beings feel. And offering you a story, a true story, a short story, a friend of mine, quite some years ago now, uh, was suffering with this kind of core loneliness. And so he decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with advice from uh, friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of different sizes, shapes, and colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and got another huge load and piled these on top of the first load. And he told me 
And he told the therapist that he had to go around collecting baggage from all of his friends and his family because he didn't have enough of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of his baggage in with him. And at some point during this first session, the therapist in her wisdom asked my friend to open up all the baggage that he brought in with him. And he did this and he found there was nothing inside any of it. A very wise therapist. It's not every client you can do this with. This man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there's kind of a poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief. Like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to realize and recognize and understand the load and its nature and then just simply set it down. There's an old teaching story about this that I really like. It's the story of an old woman who had practiced for many years and had some very powerful expansive and even some illuminating experiences, but she felt she hadn't reached the goal yet. And she was getting up in years and feeling, feeling like there wasn't much time left. And she so wanted freedom in this life. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she had heard was able to turn the mind, turn the heart towards the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up at the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see him uh, to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted the ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. She told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be this, the one to reveal this to her. Well, the old man stood still listening to her, looked at her briefly, and then taking his time, he slowly turned around and slowly started walking down the mountain just for a few steps. And then he stopped again and he briefly stood still and again, very slowly turned around towards the woman. And then he very carefully and slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain 
toward the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep exploring, sensing and seeing and understanding, and in fact, living life more freshly and fully right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things. This being the relative aspect of understanding not self is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. And from Wu Man, ancient Chinese Chan master, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter, if your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. In closing the Dhamma talk this evening from two pieces, two different pieces from the other night, from a collection of, of the from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all being. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of, of the conceit, I am, that is the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. You see that there is no thing here. And you will therefore see, indeed, there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you 
are therefore neither located in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or so. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And again, thank you for your practice. May all of the wholesome energies and fruits that have manifested through this day's practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. And we'll close our Dhamma talk evening chanting the sharing of blessings together. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces 
celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.